0: well hello everybody and welcome back to the hacker lounge with yash
1: and bram uh today we have a very special guest uh here's a quick introduction uh her name is cindy yay cindy welcome to the show
2: yay thanks for having me
1: so cindy Wu is a co-founder of jelly which is an organization building equitable platforms for scientists prior to jelly cindy co-founded experiment a crowdfunding platform for science scientific research backed by y combinator experiment has been profiled by leading publications, including Science Magazine, Nature, The Economist, and Science Friday. Bill Gates recognized experiment as a solution to close the gap for potentially promising but unfunded projects. Best of all, Cindy is one of the coolest people I know, and I'm really excited to have her here today.
2: Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here.
1: Nice, nice. So uh, I guess to start, like, how how are are you doing? What are you working on? What's going on?
2: I'm doing pretty well. What am I working on? Surfing? coding, surfing, coding. Yeah.
1: <laughs> That's a great life.
2: <laughs> Can't complain. Oh, yeah.
1: You should tell everyone where you're located right now.
2: So I'm located in Honolulu, Hawaii in the middle of nowhere, <laughs> literally the middle of the Pacific Ocean.
0: <laughs> Do you like Hawaii? I mean, it feel like Hawaii is so cool. It's a great destination spot, but living there, is it like a great place to live too?
2: I think it's a good place to live. Do I like Hawaii? i like it but i don't think hawaii is like enough for me mm-hmm. it's amazing? kind of
0: like quiet it's like if, if you if, if it's just the surfing i mean surfing is awesome but i mean i'm sure that like maybe one day you want to skateboard <laughs> or snowboard
2: yeah you can't snowboard here though i've heard you can go to the big island and you can like walk up or hike up to the top of one of the peaks and you can bring your snowboard in the winter and you can snowboard. And ski.
1: That's really cool. That yeah. is really cool. Nice. So you've just been surfing and coding. What are you coding?
2: Currently I've, I've been working on learning closure. So I'm like halfway through one of the books on closure, which is pretty cool. I like it a lot.
0: What do you think of like functional programming as a paradigm? Because it it, it had definitely a little popularity thing going on a few years ago, but it seems to have kind of gone by the wayside.
2: I think it's kind of like a dark art in the same way that like persuasion is a dark art and that... It will always be relevant, but it will never be the language. Or like it will, functional programming will never be like the majority of the majority of programmers are not going to be like interested in Lisp and Closure and these types of things. Um but last year I picked up SICP for the first time. And I had been like on and off learning programming mostly to just know enough to be dangerous. But the, until I picked up sick I I didn't really feel like programming was something I was super interested in. I had read part of sick B like years ago when I was on the airplane, but so my background is I, I wanted to study math when I was an undergrad and my dad's an actuary. So my dad is also really into math and Functional programming just, like, seems more like math to me than, like, than JavaScript or Ruby, and that really resonated with me.
0: And, and sorry, I literally don't know, what does SICP stand for exactly? What does sick It
2: stands for, it's a very, I don't know exactly what it stands for. Let me look it up. <laughs> So SICP is uh, short for Structure and Interpretation of Computer Programs. Mm. And it's a textbook that is, I think, the introductory, in- introductory textbook for computer science majors at MIT, I think.
0: Mm. Is, it, is it like a really, what, what about the read kind of like took you in and made you want to spend more time programming?
2: I think with programming languages, you have different cultures. And this book at the beginning, I think it, it like sets a certain tone for like the type of person that would care about these things, the, I don't know, there's just like a feel and it does that well. I guess it probably doesn't resonate with many people, which is why like many people don't read this book, but it resonated with me, but I can't really tell you in words exactly why.
1: <laughs> so what have you been building with all of this programming languages? Cause I know like offhandedly observing, you've been picking up a lot of new programming stuff recently.
2: So right now we're building a tool called Jelly, which is intended to be like a repository for all of your scientific stuff, your scientific work, your projects and in the same way that Git and GitHub changed collaborative programming for programmers, uh, we're hoping that the work that we do now will change um, how scientists do collaborative science. Mm. So we have a web product called Jelly that's live, and then we, in the last six weeks, built a, a offline-first product called Super Paper. And so, those are the two main things that I've been working on.
0: As what exactly is a collaborative scientist in the sense of, like, you know, you see all these academic journals and stuff where people publish papers and then people will try and replicate different studies. W- what does it mean to be more collaborative? Is it collaboration between different universities or different scientists globally? What, is, what does that look like exactly?
2: it looks like all the things you described, but at the core, it really is just like, how do you make it a joy for two human beings to use computers to do work together? And then if you can get two human beings to do work together in a way that brings them a lot of enjoyment, then you can go from two to four to 10 to, and then you have other problems that show up when it's like university to university collaboration, but. Um, at the core, it's like, how does one human communicate to another human in a way that like works well for both of those people? And then how do they bring in their friends?
1: So would do you feel like that's not happening? Or like humans aren't feeling great working together using online tools in like the science community right now? And if like, why not? Like what's missing?
2: I think a lot of our tools get in our way. So they're slow, or the formats are stuck to that product so you can't export it out or company goes out of business and then you like can't view your stuff um there are other issues within like science science culture that makes there's like certain bad behaviors that go on that are then perpetuated because I don't know I think in society oftentimes if you had to work hard in a certain way to get something For some reason, humans tend to pass that down to the next generation of like, well, if you had to spend, if I had to spend 10,000 hours, I don't know, getting a hello world to show up, then the next generation should also have to spend the 10,000 hours to do that too. Um, And it's getting better, but those types of behaviors continue and all of those things create negative friction. that makes it not fun to do science with other people.
1: I think that's kind of interesting that you bring that up because I feel like programming, uh, it can definitely be a lot better, but I feel like it's still relatively fun to work on projects with other people. Like for example, Cindy and I worked on this thing called tldrpapers.com if you wanna check it out. Um, and we've never met in person and you're like across the continent, but we I, I, I had a pretty good time building it. I don't know about you. And so I'm wondering, Um, You know, as someone who's kind of dabbled in both areas, like in the scientific community and kind of in the hack community while also doing Y Combinator, what are some things that each of those communities can learn from each other? Like what can programming nerds like Bram and I learn from scientists and what can scientists learn from us?
2: Hmm. That's a good question. I had a lot of fun. I still have a lot of fun building TLDR papers. It helps me think about, you know, making sure we don't make bad things. Um, what can scientists learn from programmers? What can programmers learn from founders? What can founders learn from scientists and whatever other combinations exist? Yeah,
1: yeah. Any premutation? Um,
2: I think programmers are really great because they they can make their own tools. And so when something doesn't work the way they want it, they'll just be like, well, I'll just fix it. And scientists, many scientists are programmers, but I'd say the majority of scientists are not. And so when, when you don't understand how something is built, it's easy to just accept that's how the world works, that's how it is, and then just kind of continue on with your life. So I think that's one thing scientists can learn from programmers. Programmers can learn from scientists. So in the last few days, I've been thinking about how programmers or how engineers and scientists are different from each other. And one of the things that I hadn't realized when I was doing science as an undergrad at University of Washington, that I think played a really, really important role in doing science that's new, is that to do science, you have to have a lot of faith. In the same Maybe not in the same way, but in a similar way to how, let's say, so I was raised Catholic in a similar way to how my parents believe in God. I think for science, in order for you to do science, you have to have a really like expansive imagination of what could possibly be. And I don't, I don't know if programmers tend to have less of an imagination, but I, I I, th- I think scientists and programmers and founders could use more of that. And I think just like in general, adults could mm-hmm. use more of that. Kids are really good at that. Yeah. Um, yeah. Oh, and then founders. I think the one thing I learned from YC is this like pay it forward culture, which is, I was just talking to my friend about this an hour ago that like, whenever someone emails me. So like when Yash contacted me, I was like, yes, I would love to chat. And I think the reason why I became programmed this way is because when I entered Silicon Valley or entered the startup community, so many people were like, yeah, I'll spend 30 minutes with you. I'll like, I'll help you in any way that I can. And that sh- I think that should happen more in science. Um so those are three things. I don't know if they're any good. But-
1: no, that was great. Yeah. Bram, you were
0: awesome. I, Yeah. I, I wanted to dig a little bit deeper into the imaginative kind of process specifically for 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 scientists, because I, I find that to be really intriguing because, you know, the way at least that I understood the scientific method was that, you know, people propose a hypothesis that they feel is plausible right or something that can be tested against um they set up their control they set up their their their, you know uh experimental variables and then they go and and go and test that and i think science does have a big magic component to it where it's like oh what does this chemical do you know what i mean what happens if i poke this kind of thing but to hear you say that the um, faith was very interesting is it is it more faith that you think that, the, that your hypothesis can be correct or faith in the idea that you can go and find something new and like discover something about the universe that hasn't been seen yet?
2: Hmm. I think definitely the second I believe in. So you have to have faith that you will be able to uncover something that all other human beings that have ever lived on this planet have not been able to uncover. The first part about like faith in your hypotheses is I think one of the flaws of being human and and why collaborative science is so important is because as a human, if you want to discover something no one has ever discovered, you have to have faith that like this hypothesis is even worth testing. And then if you go out and test it, and then you have to like use the scientific method to carve away all of your like beliefs and be like, does the data like do the thing? And if you are the creator of that hypothesis and question and the experimental uh, design and the data collection and the conclusions, like if you don't have another human being that has never heard about this idea before, review it, then it's very, there is a risk that like you're just looking for stuff you're just finding stuff that you're looking for.
1: Um, I guess in relation to the scientific process, something I've been thinking about a lot is like, I kind of think I like programming because it uses the same part of my brain that I use when I make music, but maybe that's just being me too pretentious about my own career to call it like a creative field. Um, Do you feel like programming is inherently creative and do you feel like science also has like a creativity aspect to it?
2: I think both programming and science are creative activities. Though, you don't have to treat it as a creative activity. I think you choose to. (laughs) If you wanted to be a engineer that just builds based on spec, then I mean, some creativity has to come in, but you don't have to exercise that part of the brain if you don't want to. And in science too, you could just be a, I guess equivalent of a code monkey as a lab monkey and you just do essentially what a robot can do, and you can still call yourself a scientist.
1: Right. Um, I guess leading into that, um, you know, as someone who's dabbled in like both of those areas, and I think you do like a fair bit of music from listening to your podcast, which we can link below. um, what, What do you feel like you can learn, like generally about what it means to be creative across like all of these disciplines? Like, are there some like general principles to follow if you want to continually put out like new stuff that you think is cool or inspiring?
2: Oftentimes I see people look to other people's work as as examples of what to mimic. And I think you can get pretty far by mimicking things that you like, but if you're too prescriptive about, you know, copying someone else's style, I think you're doing a disservice to the world in that you have your own style that's intrinsic to you that only you can express. And if you don't activate that part of yourself, then like, you know, I think the world is worse off. And I think many people don't get past the mimicking part into the like believing in themselves because it's it's really hard.
0: Mm-hmm. Cindy, I am. I'm so happy that you said that oh, because, funnily enough, Yash up. and I had <laughs> this exact conversation <laughs> in the last episode, and I am fully on board with your he's been giving
1: me a smug smile for the last thirty seconds. By the way, <laughs> <laughs> it's like, like, yes, another point. Uh, I agree with you.
0: I, I think that, and and maybe it'd be more interesting to hear Yash's perspective of, about mimicry because I'd basically be repeating what you were saying. So actually I'll, let's, I'll give Yash the floor and, and raise his
1: perspective. I don't think what you're saying is wrong. I just, I don't know what that means. I don't know what be yourself means because I am just the product of like everything I've seen. And so like my kind of argument was just like, it's okay. If you're trying to mimic someone, eventually you will like naturally develop variations just based on who you are as a person. And it'll turn into something that's kind of your own. Cause it's not like, I don't know. I feel like I definitely agree that there are like really innovative creatives who just like, oh, I've never seen anything like this before. But maybe it's just me, but I don't think I'm that type of person. Like I have to just like find someone's work, which I think is cool. And then like iterate on it like a hundred times or something. And then I have something that I can say is like my own. That's what I think. I think I'll, I'll, I'll,
2: the I'll... same thing in different ways. Yeah. Cause I think there are multiple ways to get to the destination that is like producing original work and every time you iterate on a thing even if you're doing the same thing a hundred times you inject a little bit of yourself into the thing that like no one else could have and it's like when water like drips over a really sharp rock if you drip enough drops of water it will turn smooth
0: yeah I don't know (laughs) I I guess for me, when I think of of rope mimicry and trying to learn to be creative, I, I think, Yash, you brought up a great point where you're already the collection of a bunch of different things that have kind of rooted themselves in your subconscious. And to me, creativity is more tapping into those than kind of like forcefully and deliberately trying to copy somebody else's equation to how they got there. And I think that you're also correct in the point that when you are copying this person, you won't do it perfectly. And that's something that can be lauded and rewarded. But I think, uh, and we we talked about this a little bit last episode 72, so I'm trying to just catch you up on, on, on this conversation as well for what we, what we had discussed, that given how easy it is to kind of share and be yourself these days on the internet um, in terms of flexibility and, and ease of reaching people who live across the world, um, but might share the same interests as you. at least in my own creative endeavors, I've been the most kind of happy with the output as well as proud of its uh, exposure or how people responded to it when it was really just a replica not even a replication of anything that I saw it was more just something that I really wanted to do. you know And I think that being using using the skill set, that you have, whether it be coding or writing or music or crocheting and applying your own desires and curiosities to that create something really cool for other people to enjoy. And that's just my opinion on the the matter.
2: Do you, I think this is a question for both of you, but do you think there's a difference between your skills and your talent?
1: Um, kind of, I think, I kind of see talent as like a, you know how like in Pokemon, your Pokemon has like different, the Pokemon that you, the specific Pokemon you catch has a different base. They're called like IVs. Um, and each Pokemon, when you max them out to a level hundred, they can have like different stats, even if they're the exact same Pokemon, that's what talent is. But like leveling up from like level one to 100, that's the part that's like skill. That's how I think of it. I think that's a really interesting
0: question because I think that we all have proclivities towards certain things um, and certain skills we're more curious about and we get more rewarded by the people around us, which in turn heightens your curiosity about continuing to do that thing. So I think it's a bit of both. I think that there is that natural draw, towards certain things, but you're more likely to be drawn towards things that you're good at. I think if you you know, say, for example, that you really want to be a hockey player, but you kept falling on your face every time you went on the ice, you know what I mean? You would have a harder time of getting over that initial hump of becoming a good hockey player and finding a passion for it versus, you know, a statistic I like to kind of quote sometimes, which is really interesting, is that people who are born in this this half of the year, the January to, to March, April, um, tend to be better hockey players. They're, they're more represented in the NHL. And the reason is that they're bigger than the other kids their age who are born in September and October. And when you're 25, that's not even a huge difference. You, know, you can't really tell somebody who, January or September like, who was born when. They kind of look the same. But when you're eight, it's a huge difference. You know, it's a, it's, a, it's a magnificent difference. So people who are eight and born in January have this kind of um, head start that allows the coaches to kind of put them out first and kind of like have their parents tell them you're really good at hockey. You should continue to do hockey. And for the kids who really like hockey and want to continue to play,
1: they end up kind of becoming hockey players. I would even like ask you the same question because, um, from observing you and talking to other people that know you, you are genuinely, I'm talking about Cindy. Um, you're like one of the hardest working people I know. And you're very like, it seems almost naturally determined to solve any problem that you care about. And do you think that's like a skill you hone in or is that just like how you were born?
2: I think it's both, but I think it's more how I was born or like my personality. Like I can work really, really hard on something I want to do, but the moment someone's like, Hey, can you do this thing? And I don't want to do it. I can't work on it at all.
1: Yeah, um, for context, Cindy lives six hours behind me. So sometimes I'll feel like I've woken up early and started, gone like a productive start to the day. But Cindy is already up, even though she's six hours behind me and she's already doing stuff. And I'm like, damn, this is crazy.
2: <laughs> I also have a- it- oh. oh, go
0: ahead. Oh, go ahead. Uh, do you have like a morning routine? Is that, is that just a thing that you just feel the need to, to kind of wake up early or is that really help your productivity? Not to tangent this conversation because I think we're going down a great route but I think that's an interesting point.
2: I think if there's something I need to do, meaning that like, I don't know, some other force is controlling me and saying like, Cindy, you need to do this. Then I naturally wake up really early and like do a bunch of stuff and it's kind of scary because it's not, I don't feel like I'm telling myself to do this, but there's like something else telling me to do this. Um, so I don't think I'm naturally a morning person or I don't have any rituals that have really stuck. And I've definitely gone through periods where I, like, I never ever want to wake up because you know, if you wake up, you have to do something. So just keep sleeping for the rest of your life. <laughs>
1: yeah, me too. In general, do you feel like, especially founders, do you feel like you do have to be born with like certain things or certain qualities, kind of like hockey players being born in January? And if so, what are they? What do you think?
2: I don't think you do. Though some people are really religious about this and they think founders are born. Like one of my really close friends was like, founders are born, it's a fact. And I'm like, "Uh, are you sure? because like, I wasn't destined to be a founder. I thought I like during college, I worked at Starbucks. And even before I started college, I, I was working at Baskin Robbins and then at Starbucks. And I only applied to one university because my parents were like, you have to go to college. And I went to like a very good high school that like graduated lots of AP students, even though AP doesn't None of those things matter. Um, but it was like one of those schools that's supposed to set you up to go to college. And I applied to one school and I was like, if I don't get in, then I'll just work at, I'll just keep working. But I got in. So then I went to school and I didn't really go to class. And I didn't know about Y Combinator when we applied to Y Combinator. Like my co-founder, Denny, was like, we're gonna, we're gonna change science. And I was like, I don't know, I'm just doing science in the lab. And so I don't think I... I accidentally came upon this path and I don't think I was any more talented than any other kid at my school.
0: For the idea of being born a founder, which I think is really intriguing, does that imply that there's a certain kind of personality and set of skills that people would believe would make somebody a founder the same way that like big and fast on the ice would make you a great hockey player?
2: I think so, but they're not, um, they're not like a set of skills. They're more, I think to be a good leader, um, you have to lead from, it has to be genuine and for it to be genuine, you have to be really in tune with like your independent thoughts of how the world works. And so it's not so much that like you have to have long hair or you have to be this height, but more so that you are yourself.
0: And, I, and I'm i obviously Biased to agree with that given our earlier conversation of creativity. And I I do honestly believe that the the great, the great founders of this world are genuinely just fulfilling their own creative desires. Um, And when those happen to line up with what the market really wants and enjoys, you really get some really cool magical outcomes because you get people who are really into this thing. They're really good at making it happen because they enjoy doing it and enjoy getting better at that, that task. Um, and other people find
1: value in it too. So I completely agree. Is there some sort of like, like in the general community of founders, like something that people kind of obsess over as like a trait or like a quality you need as a founder that you think is like kind of overrated or like not necessarily something everyone needs?
2: I think some people think you have to like, you have to be a good public speaker. I think remote work is showing like, maybe you never have to speak to anyone ever. (laughs) I mean, I don't know how well that scales, but. Um, that you have to be persuasive using your words where like there are other ways to be persuasive, not necessarily just by writing or, I don't know.
0: What do you think, not necessarily makes a good founder makes a bad founder because your point of kind of being yourself, it's really kind of hard to to decide if you're being good or bad at being somebody else, or watching somebody else be themselves, I suppose. But in terms of building a career that that people can really enjoy and be proud of when they look back at it, um, you know, at the end of it, right? What do you think you've kind of learned along the path of founding and scientisting and coding uh, that makes the career kind of worth it from a Hmm. spiritual sense, I suppose.
2: I I don't really know what a career is, but it's like uh, a, the history of the stuff that you've done that you look back on of the work that you've done.
1: Yeah, pretty much. Hmm.
2: The question is like, what have I learned that makes this type of career rewarding to me? Mm -hmm. It's rewarding because you simultaneously have all the freedom in the world and no freedom at all. So you can do anything that you want, but once you decide to do something, everything is your fault. Everything is your responsibility which is really cool and to me, and it's a rare opportunity that most humans never get. Um, And I think it suits me really well, but I also think about, I guess the other careers that I would consider also have that element, which is like I could be someone who just fishes every day and sails around, where I have all the freedom in the world by I still have to catch fish and I still have to like sell fish so I can live um so that's what makes it fun for me and then because you're responsible for everything you're always having to learn something new and you I always feel like I'm behind so when Yash mentioned like I work a lot of hours um one of the reasons why I work so many hours is because I was just telling my co-founder this yesterday he was like Cindy why don't you why don't you follow the news and know what's happening in the world <laughs> like it's because I'm trying to like gain a skill that other people have that's taken them 10 years to learn and I'm trying to learn it in you know three months and for any mortal human being like myself to do that I have to work 10 times as hard as the person that's trying to build their career being a closure programmer, for example. So independence and freedom, but at the same time, no independence and no freedom.
1: (laughs) I guess that kind of transitions into like, what are your... I guess you could kind of be classified as like you're like a programmer sometimes or like a founder sometimes or like a scientist sometimes. Like what are your, what's your least favorite part about this kind of career apart from the whole like no freedom, depending on how you look at it.
2: There are a lot of tasks that you have to do that are like, you have to do them, but they're like robots could do them. For example, accounting or, um, taxes and i think i'm really lucky in that like we live in 2020 and there are a lot of tools that make that way easier for us today than it was you know in like 1930 but those are the things that still suck because you still have to spend a couple brain cycles doing those things
1: i guess also on top of that um i say this like most of, I, so I'm currently majoring in software engineering at the University of Waterloo. Um, most of the people that I talk to that are in software engineering, when you ask them, like, what would be like your dream career? Or like, what would you want to do ideally? It's not being a suite at, like Google or whatever. Most people say they want to be like a founder, right? And I think... I'm sure that's true for like a good chunk of those people, but I I do think that like, a lot of that comes from like a romanticized idea of what a founder is from like the mythos of like the college dropout, making like the social media for like pets or whatever and making millions of dollars and being super rich. And so like, when it comes to that, like mythicized idea of like the Silicon Valley founder, what do people get wrong? And like, what should kids know before they decide that's what they wanna do for the rest of their lives?
2: I think the only way to know is to do it. So there's not really much that anyone can say. If you really want to know, then you have to do, but um, it's very lonely. So even when you have, I've never like run a hundred person company, but I'm, I feel like it only gets more and more lonely as your product grows. In that, like, no one really understands what it's like to be in your position, and then you also end up in a position, if you're still working at the company, that, like, you kind of are the glue for everything, and so you know everything about everything, but you can't tell certain people things because of the nature of just the politics of society, of making a society, and so... It seems really fun and it seems like you know you get more you have more and more and more friends but really you keep the same friends you always had and you just know more and more people
0: hmm. do you think that maybe the mythos is kind of overhyped then within the tech community and maybe even in the scientific community where a lot of people kind of want to be the the Feynman's and the Fermi's of the world um and without necessarily kind of doing the cost analysis of being that type of person.
2: I think it translates to other professions, like anyone who, any creative profession, I think is very lonely.
1: How much of people's success in like, as like founders, cause you constantly hear about how so few startups succeed how much of that is kind of like a factor of luck or like can you meet founders and just like tell from like their determination that they are like bound to succeed like what's the percentage of like skill versus luck i guess if you were to I guess
2: you have to get really lucky at the beginning and then you have to have the determination to acquire all of the skills needed to continue making yourself more and more lucky
0: So luck is, uh, can be kind of gamified through having a certain set of skills that make you more lucky or give you a greater surface area of making lucky things happen to you?
2: Definitely. And I think that's why we moved to Silicon Valley when we did, is to increase, increase our probability of luck.
0: Do you think moving away from Silicon Valley has, well, I guess after kind of already having built a business and everything like that, you probably don't feel as much of a need, but it's obviously a hot topic right now. A lot of people are are talking because of COVID about, you know, leaving SF and never coming back. Yeah. Where do you weigh in on the issue?
2: Silicon Valley will always be a magical place because like, there are many people leaving Silicon Valley right now, but the heart of Silicon Valley always stays. And the people that love san francisco will always love san francisco and they won't leave and i'm i'm pretty happy that like people are leaving because if you don't love san francisco then don't stay in san francisco i don't know too much about you know palo alto. i lived in east palo alto for 3 months but i don't really identify with south bay but san francisco itself is like all it will always be magical and it will always be a place where you can dream. And as long as it's a place where you can dream, it will attract founders.
1: Mm, so what do you what do you mean by magical? Just like the ability to come up with anything you want and have people trust that you can do it?
2: I think that's part of it. But I think in the same way, Hawaii has this magic too, but in a different way. And New York has this magic, but it's like something in the air. <laughs> sounds
1: really silly. I can tell you in Mississauga, Ontario, I'm not feeling the same thing in the air right now. <laughs> <laughs> I, I I I understand if you're, what you're coming
0: from. I've lived in New York City a number of years and and feel the same, but as a counterpoint from someone who's also done the city and SF and would love to hear your opinion on this, I, I do feel not necessarily that it's like overplayed, but I think if you are the type of person who would succeed in these environments, you're most likely going to succeed in another environment, at least the people who I've seen successful in SF and NYC. They've kind of had that, I think they they adopted the, that, that feeling in the air into their, their heart, but I think they were already that person. They just didn't maybe want to completely lean into that person until they felt that they were in an environment that was accepting enough of that type of person that they were. What do you think about that?
2: I definitely agree with that. So when I was, I think, I haven't changed as a person from like when I, I grew up in Seattle or Bellevue, Washington, went to school in Seattle. And I think I always had it in me to make a thing, a product or a company or whatever. But everyone around, not everyone around me, but like the systems around me were like, you can't, you can't do that. That's like impossible. And so I do agree with you that like, if you have it in you, it doesn't matter where you are, but if you're going to locate yourself where people are going to tell you, you can't do stuff, you're better off not talking to anybody and just focusing on your own bubble.
1: Mm-hmm. Did you feel that way in Seattle?
2: Yeah, I definitely felt that way in Seattle. Not so much that people were telling me I couldn't do things, but people, a lot of the advice was like. The way to be successful is to look at other successful things and copy them. But there wasn't anything that like looked like me or there wasn't anything that looked like my company that I could, the company I wanted to build that I could copy. And then so people be like, well, then I don't know what you should do.
1: I I remember in an, you wrote this article about Y Combinator and about how it was uh, like a it just kind of your story throughout Y Combinator. And I remember like a specific passage in it where Paul Graham told you that you should probably make Experiment a nonprofit company, uh, yeah. but you decided to go against his advice and continue making it a for-profit company. Um, I feel like me as a person now, if Paul Graham came up to me and told me to do something about my startup, I would probably listen to him very blindly. And so I'm curious to know, like, because that does kind of, Uh, lean into what you were talking about before in Seattle. Like, why is that different in the Valley where like people are telling you to maybe try different things based on what they know? And like, also, why did you decide to not follow Paul Graham's advice?
2: I think my introduction to Y Combinator, my Y Combinator might be different from many people's introductions to Y Combinator because I don't browse Hacker News and I didn't read PG's essays before we were accepted. And so I didn't have a idea of who PG was so PG was just any other guy that like you know all of my peers really respected so I was like if I respect my peers and they respect Paul then I should probably respect him too but I didn't really understand why Paul and Jessica and them were in the positions that they were um which is ended up being like pretty dumb of me because I ended up having to, I ended up making a lot of mistakes myself when like Paul and the other partners had already told me otherwise. Um, so I think that's like unique to just, I didn't know anything about YC going in. So your first question, your one of your questions was like, why didn't you take that advice? And I think it's because I don't know, stubborn, I was stubborn. (laughs) And then you had another question that was about, um, I forget what the other question was. In
1: comparison to Seattle, like the advice, the types of advice that you got in comparison to Seattle in general, like how did it differ?
2: So the difference is huge and very simple. And it's that in Silicon Valley, if you, Get in. If you hang out with the right people, they will always tell you their advice and then follow it up with, well, do whatever you think is best and I'll support you. But that wasn't the case. At least my experience in Seattle wasn't like that. It wasn't like, I believe you, I believe in you, I disagree with you here, but if you disagree with me, I'm still going to like 100% believe in you. And with at least in the white Combinator community in 2013, I felt that the partners were very good at like being very, I don't know if strict is the right word, but I guess being pretty prescriptive about their advice, but then being like, we'll do whatever you want. It's your company. We invested <laughs> in you because we believe in you. I don't know, but PG's always he's very um well known for saying this one phrase which is well he would like you would ask him a question you'd be like i forget what it is he would say specific words are like well you know what you should do and then he would tell you but then he wouldn't expect you to actually do it
0: <laughs> that's really interesting and i think that really kind of is a nice tie off to the philosophy that we've kind of been discussing, of listening to your own gut versus kind of having other people tell you what you think that your gut is, um, or where where your gut should be. And uh, for 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 programming at least, I haven't I haven't done much in the way of founding. Uh, I've felt the same way, where sometimes you can kind of get bottlenecked on the idea of. These people over here say I should be using this framework. These people over here say I should be using this, using this language. And you end up using brain cycles to just not solve the thing that you set out to solve in the first place to kind of like optimize. Do you think that there's something that we can do on the internet, you know, especially as things kind of get more spread out and kind of capture that, that magic of SF, of of supportive gestures, paying it forward, whether that's do what you want anyway, like you're your own person, you you eat your cake, you know what I mean? If it's bad, you you made a bad cake. If you made a good cake, you made a great cake, you know? How can we help people feel that supportiveness while also giving them actually good advice?
1: On the internet. On the internet.
2: Yeah. One of the things I did for a while is every week I would write a log of like, what went well, what didn't go well, and if anyone tried to attack our ship. Um, and I put it out publicly and I did this for like 13 weeks. And I don't really know what, why I was doing it. I think I just wanted to keep myself accountable. And then I stopped. And then I started again, a hundred weeks ago. And I've been doing this for a hundred weeks, but I haven't released any of the content. And I don't know if I ever will, Um, but I wish that I had the courage to, and I wish that more people would log their feelings and their, the like whys of what they do, what they do publicly in a way that like, I don't know, the internet would appreciate and understand as like, this is just a draft, not really a draft. This is just like how one person feels on that day. And it's okay for it to be like not politically correct or whatever. And like, let's not criticize them for the minute details and let's appreciate the fact that this human being was willing to be vulnerable about like their process. And if we were able to, if more people do that, um, then more just like more information about how stuff gets made or how decisions get decided will be out there in the world of stories. And then people will feel less, I don't know, scared to like do what they feel is like the right thing to do because they'll see so many examples of people just doing things because they feel like it's the thing they wanna do. And I think that's my dream. That has always been my dream for science: is that scientists keep this, not necessarily a public log, but just that you log the stuff, and eventually one day, maybe when you die, like people can go look at it and understand who you were and what you did, what you did. But I think it's not just a thing that science could benefit from, but it's a thing that, like, I would love to know what, I don't know, like Franklin Delano Roosevelt was thinking when he was 13 years old, but I can't because he didn't write it down. Or if he did write it down, it's not on the internet.
1: (laughs) Yeah, um, I think tying into that, something that I almost learned from you is like, I had this, I wouldn't say like an inferiority complex, but I feel like when you when you hear about people that you know are really successful you almost kind of like blindedly assume like oh they're amazing people and like everything they do is like perfect and um i think from like hearing you talk about other successful people we don't have to like bring um anyone in specific but just like in general like you learn a lot about how like these are just like normal humans trying to figure stuff out and i think people kind of tend to forget that and people tend to like see like an end result And kind of glorified as like oh this is just like a really perfect human being and i think um a good example of that is like obama recently came out with his book and um i remember seeing an interview about him talking about how him and his wife would like argue a lot for example whereas i feel like anyone looking from the outside and would have been like oh they're just like a perfect couple and like life's great and he's like the president and they're super successful and that's something i definitely i think picked up from you because i think you once told me exactly that i was like yeah that's a good point (laughs) and so I'm curious to know if um, you sort of feel like um, what the best way is to get more people to do that Um, because you know you said you wanted to do it but you were hesitant is it just like a matter of other people doing it as well
2: it might be easier if a group of people do it together Hmm. I don't know how do you get more people to do that do it yourself and then I think people do do that though like and we saw that with when blogs entered the internet but i feel like people are not blogging in the same way that they were when we had live journal might be too young for live journal
1: yeah that is i know live journal i got you (laughs) but like i i mean i guess my observation of social media is like everyone is not lying, but like they're trying to say what will help their personal brand the best rather than being vulnerable. And that's what the social media has always been like for as long as I've grown up on it. So maybe that's why you kind of have like a different perspective. But I think it'd be really cool if like people were a lot more open. Um, My friend, he has like a personal website where he actively lists everything he's failed at doing in a year. And it's actually helped his career more than it's like harmed it because like people have reached out and been like, wow, it was great to see you be so honest. And like, he's made a lot of connections from it. So that was pretty interesting.
2: I think if there's like a structural change that needs to happen, it definitely is just making it, making it so that every human being can, you know, live a good life. So like the government should give us healthcare in the United States. If we, we have the means to do it, give all your citizens health (laughs) care, give all your citizens education and like level the playing field so that, you know, maybe one day if you're a citizen of the United States or citizen of any country in the world, if you're working, you're choosing to work. Mm -hmm. And if you have all your basic needs met, then you're much more likely to blog and say things that require a lot of courage because it doesn't require you don't need to make sure your image looks good because you're you know you're not going to be judged by you know the next employer on your internet profiles um and then your entire livelihood of your rent and your entire savings is dependent on your like online profile so yeah. I'm excited for that day and I think it will come just coming a lot slower than I would like
0: and I think that's a really interesting perspective specifically the idea of, of kind of catering and building this online image to protect yourself and, and give yourself these kind of assets to maybe almost fill in Maslow's hierarchy as opposed to having that already be covered and the thing that kind of stuck out to me is the idea of kind of zero sum games that get played on social media a lot. Um, and, and the idea of if I don't have this many likes, I'm not worth it as a person compared to the other people. And I think the thing, and I would love to hear your opinion on this, the the social media that finally broke the camel's back for me in terms of counting likes and comments was TikTok. Like seeing how ridiculous the views counts get on TikTok makes me think that Oh, absolutely none of this matters. There's, there's, no, there's no point or rhyme or reason to any of these numbers, you know what I mean? You'll see someone doing the savage dance and get 80 billion views or some ridiculous number that doesn't even make sense, you know, given the the, the population of humanity. And I wonder, kind of out loud, if you think that maybe other people will start to kind of like wake up two from this idea that, that social media is a zero sum game and that we're all kind of in quote unquote competition with each other and just be more intense and, and content maybe using it to kind of be what it was intended to be, which was like a microblogging, you know what I mean? Or, or say the things that you feel exist in the world. And the reason that I, I, I know I'm kind of drawing you in a lot of different directions here, but I think that, uh, One of the worst things that happened because of social media was the comments sections, because people will let you know what they think in a rude way and kind of scare you away from being who you are. And I think, you know, whether it sometimes is valid, totally is. I think one out of every 15 times someone says something that they should be called out for. But I think the 14 out of 15 times it's worth engaging maybe in a in a good conversation or not at all and just kind of consuming it and posting the thing that you think. So that was a lot. I'm sorry. I just gave you a lot to kind of comment on, but do you have any thoughts on the kind of zero sum nature of social media? And if we're moving away from it or deeper into it, um, what does that landscape look like f- for you five years from now?
2: There's a quote that I think about like almost every day and it's, I forget who said this, but they said I think it's we don't know how to measure what we care about. So we care about what we measure. Mm-hmm. And I think that just those words like encompass all of the like the liking behavior for me on the web. I don't think it's getting better. If anything, it's getting worse. And I don't know if it's one of those things that gets worse before it gets better. Though I do have a lot of optimism and I think that there is a lot of promise in decentralized social networks. Um, I don't know how fast the adoption will be but I do think that is our destination And the reason why I think that is our destination is because that's where we started. So these huge centralized platforms that exist today, like Facebook and Twitter, they are going to crumble. But I think there's going to be a lot of commotion and a lot of pain in the process. Can so I think there's, there's light at the end of the tunnel. The tunnel is just really, really long.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, I think I, I it is is eight, and I don't want to keep you longer than you are. Uh, thanks so much for already giving us like an hour of your time. Really appreciate it. And thanks so much for being the first guest in the lounge. It was great to have you. I had a, I actually had a really good time.
2: I yes, really thank good you time so you.
1: much. <laughs> really appreciate it. Yeah. Um excited to continue to see what jelly evolves into. I've been following it relatively closely i still get um emails from github on my phone whenever you update the repository (laughs) yeah
2: i'll try Um, to update it more
1: (laughs) (laughs) just try to spam my inbox but yeah thanks so much i'm gonna be thinking
0: deeply about the things that i can be better at in terms of like measuring to the things that i care about as opposed to caring about the things that are measurable
1: so i like that quote a lot yeah Yeah, it was good okay sweet thanks everyone
2: Thank you both. Thank you,
1: Cindy. Really appreciate it. See ya.
2: Have
0: a great one.